I feel that that is very much the challenge is to um, is to carry out that that battle um, with in this case energy competitors who are very sophisticated um, and have well-lined pockets that you know as I said next era we would have been quite supportive of next era's project that they proposed because it was actual new renewable generation they lost that bid to something that would have no climate benefit that was very unfortunate welcome to animalia where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Back in 1987, a committee from the U.S. Senate looked into allegations of an oil company retrieving more oil than they had originally reported from a Native American well in Oklahoma. You see, as part of the deal to drill on that Native American site, the oil company had agreed to pay some proceeds to the local tribe in proportion to how much oil they were able to successfully drill. For years, this oil company had been not only underreporting these numbers so as to minimize payouts and maximize their profits, but they also ordered internal staff members to destroy records after deals were done. However, when the Senate committee sniffed something was amok, this company realized they needed to form their own tactics for counteracting these types of inquiries and investigations on the political front. So they sent in their own audit team, disguised as a third party, that, what do you know, found the company actually overreported the extraction and claimed the Native American tribe owed them money to the tune of $22,000. They went even further, starting a nonprofit called Oklahomans for Judicial Excellence, an organization that rated state judges based on their loyalty to free market principles. They took it a step further still, publishing op-eds in local papers, calling out the judges who score poorly on their proprietary metric in an effort to convince the local community they were bad for business and thus bad for them, so they needed to be voted out. This moment in 1987 was the beginning of a carefully crafted playbook used by big energy companies today to maintain their market share and put a stop to any projects or initiatives or investigations that might challenge their bottom line. That organization, that oil company from 1987, was Coke Industries, arguably the most politically influential corporate organization in the history of this country that has for decades done everything in its power to protect their enormous cash cow in oil and natural gas and derivative products such as synthetic fibers and plastic. This playbook has been inherited by a wide range of think tanks all over the country across an even wider range of industries to protect corporate interests. And we're seeing it play out today across the many renewable energy projects, both generation and transmission, across the country as a means of maintaining the status quo, or at the very least, ensuring the renewable transition happens under the watch of existing energy titans. When it comes to the New England Clean Energy Connect project in Maine, many supporters of the project believe it was this very playbook used by companies like NextEra that led to the voter referendum to shut it down. While many opponents say this is not the case, that this project was stopped on legitimate grounds of environmental concerns and lack of net climate benefits, irregardless of the funding and support the opposition received from many big energy rivals. Today in episode four of 53 Miles of Me, we break down the Coke playbook and discuss 
just how influential it may or may not have been in the case of shutting down this hydropower transmission project in Maine. As a reminder, if you have not yet listened to episodes one, two, and three, well, I encourage you to do so, particularly episode one, which provides the full timeline and breakdown of this renewable energy project, touching Maine, Quebec, Massachusetts, and the larger New England electricity grid, which was initially approved at state and federal regulatory levels, but then shut down by a public referendum opposing it. In episodes two and three, and now here in four, we identify broader themes for the story in Maine that are playing out all over the country as it relates to our own clean energy transition and particularly the infrastructure needed to support it. All right, let's get into episode four. Now, let's understand this playbook and how it works and give some other examples before diving into discussing if and how it was used in the main NECEC story. If you have not heard of Coke Industries, well, they are the second largest private company in the United States after Cargill. They have annual revenues topping $120 billion. The company was founded in 1940 under the name Wood River Oil and Refining Company by Fred Koch, who at the time developed a critical advancement in oil refining. The company has grown into a massive conglomerate with their hands in many industries. However, oil, natural gas, and petroleum-derived products have driven the bulk of their historical earnings. Now, Fred passed the company down to his two sons, Charles and David Koch, often referred to as the Koch brothers. David passed in 2019, and Charles leads the company today alongside his son, Chase. Now, to be fair to Fred, back then in 1940, nobody was really aware of what was coming in the form of today's climate crisis and oil's role in that. So it would be unfair to say the company was founded with poor intentions. The energy produced from Coke Industries over many decades in the 20th century powered much of America's economic engine and growth for the middle class. You've also probably used some of the products be it an automated towel dispenser in a public restroom or Dixie branded paper cups. However, in the last 30, 35 years, as climate change has accelerated and the consensus science behind it showing the biggest problem being emissions from things like our reliance on oil and gas, as well as augmenting agriculture with fertilizer, another massive business arm of Coke Industries, the company has chosen to dig their heels in and use a deft combination of political lobbying and misinformation to maintain their profits instead of being part or even leading the much-needed shift to renewables. In the course of doing so, they've developed a very intricate and from a purely effectiveness standpoint, rather brilliant strategy that is commonly referred to as the Coke playbook. It is so successful that it is being used and adapted by countless others, not only in the energy space, but in industries like big pharma and big ag. I asked my friend Hannah to lay out just exactly how the Coke playbook works. Now, whether or not some aspects of this were applied in Maine from next day and others is what we're going to spend some time discussing in just a minute. But I first want to establish how it works in theory. Okay, take it away, Anna. The Coke Industries Playbook for Maintaining Market Share No Matter What the Science Says. Step one, form a wide, sweeping range of coalitions, political action committees, and think tanks with really promising names, such as Americans for Prosperity, and use them to run your strategies, making it extremely difficult for anyone to easily tie things back to you. Step two, strike a chord with local community interest and needs and convince them that without you, their jobs and livelihoods are on the line. Step three, frame all of your efforts around core American values and free markets so that anyone who thinks otherwise can be labeled un-American. Step four, Staff all of these various organizations with extremely talented and experienced public relations experts. Step five, 
build credibility through alliances with academia or other trusted professional organizations. Step six, conduct your own scientific studies via your organizations and alliances that cherry pick key data points and create meaningful doubt on peer-reviewed scientific consensus. Step seven, run public opinion pieces, ads, and social content that are extremely provocative and unrelenting. Step eight, lobby, lobby, lobby. When you think you've lobbied enough, lobby some more. When you are not lobbying, plan on lobbying. Step nine, air any dirty laundry that you can on judges, officials, or companies that expose your interests and seed doubt about their legitimacy. Step 10, when all else fails, work to create so much noise around the facts that you essentially overwhelm both policymakers and local communities with so much information that they are not sure what to believe, so they fall back on whatever sounds like it will be best for their immediate needs. So there you have it. Now, before diving into Maine, Let's see this in action right now somewhere else, an offshore wind project in New Jersey that is as controversial as the hydropower project in Maine. Like with Maine, the company behind the generation of this wind is an international one. In the New Jersey case, a Dutch company called Orsted. A major grassroots movement has been formed called Protect Our Coast New Jersey, with concerns over local environmental damages to marine life and coastal waters, as well as potential negative impacts to local industries like tourism. Just like in Maine, there are legitimate concerns here that need to be more carefully evaluated. And it's far from an open and shut case of who is right and wrong. Also, just like in Maine, that opposition is getting some fuel from big energy incumbents that from a purely business perspective do not want to see this offshore wind project come to light. Now, connecting the dots here took some investigative work on our part. So if you go to protectourcoastnewjersey.com or protectourcoastnj.com and go to their donations page, You'll notice that upon clicking to make a donation, the funds go to the Caesar Rodney Institute. So what's that? It's a libertarian think tank led by a guy named David Stevenson, a former Trump administration figure who briefly had oversight of the EPA. The Caesar Rodney Institute publicly denies any direct donations from fossil fuel companies, which is technically true, but masked in some real misdirection. They get some of their funding from the American Energy Alliance, or the AEA. The AEA, in turn, gets funding from the American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers, the Fossil Fuel Trade Association, as well as the Stand Together Chamber of Commerce, a trade association formed by, well, there they are, Coke Industries. The AEA, who again funds the Caesar Rodney Institute, who in turn is backing the Protect Our Coast movement in New Jersey against offshore wind, has in the past lobbied against electric vehicles and greenhouse gas emissions regulations as well as lobbied for offshore oil drilling. So when you connect all these dots, you have backers of offshore oil drilling helping fund efforts to stop offshore wind farming. However, that's not visible to anyone without hours of investigation. What the local community in Ocean City, New Jersey sees are a laundry list of concerns, some more legitimate than others, put forth by grassroots neighbors. Now, the actual merits of those offshore wind projects in New Jersey and their net climate benefits are not the point, although maybe subject for another podcast series. The point is providing an example of how that Coke playbook is being used. In order to analyze if and how this was used and whether or not it contributed to the outcome of the NECC getting shut down in Maine, it's important to first understand that what took place in Maine is far more complex than what happened in 1987 
when Coke Industries falsely reported extractions from a Native American oil well. For one, yes, it is true that three large energy companies, each of which have competitive energy interests in Maine, Nextera, Calpine, and Vistra, all contributed millions of dollars to support opposition efforts. The largest contributor of these efforts, Nextera, also has its own significant renewable energy portfolio. On the other side, you have Hydro-Quebec and Central Maine Power, who teamed up to push this project forward. Central Maine Power is owned by Avant Grid, which is in turn owned by Iberdrola, a massive energy conglomerate in Spain that also operates natural gas plants as part of its global portfolio. There is meaningful renewable energy investment from the companies that stood against it alongside their fossil fuel interests. And there's a large parent company to one of the partners behind it that has fossil fuel interests of its own. Here's Nick Bennett from the Natural Resources Council of Maine, a committed opposition figure to the project. What happened in this fight, just so you know, Next Era, um, don't buy into the CMP calling Next Era a fossil fuel company. Avangrid is a fossil fuel company. Avangrid has a natural gas network that supplies hundreds of thousands of people with natural gas to heat their homes. Yeah, and, and to be clear, Nextera has a large renewable portfolio as well. So they're the largest um, owner of renewable of yeah. renewable generating assets in the world. And interestingly, Nextera proposed a very large renewable solar and wind-based um, project to Massachusetts and lost that bid to CMP. Nextera and Iberdrola have both fossil fuel and renewable interests across their portfolio overall, but lean more renewable energy. So labeling either as a fossil fuel company would not be entirely accurate. In 2020, nearly 90% of the energy generated from Nextera came from wind, solar, and nuclear. As for Iberdrola, they installed over 38,000 megawatts of new renewable electricity in 2021. So they both are heavily invested in renewables. Both companies also have had some question marks. For example, Nextera is the majority owner of Florida Light and Power, which is leading a charge in Florida to try and crush the solar rooftop industry by ending the metering. And in episode three, we provided some history from Central Maine Power, majority owned by Arbidrola via Grid, and their efforts against rooftop solar as well. So it's not really fair to claim this is an example of the fossil fuel industry using the code playbook to take down a renewable project but rather a big energy company on one side trying to stall renewable energy projects from big energy companies on the other. I mean, these companies aren't, as much as people want to characterize them as somehow, you know, kind of the opposite of environmentalists and like they're somehow, these companies are somehow enamored, emotionally attached to fossil fuels. No, they're attached to profit. And they will gladly take the profit if it comes from renewable generation that they produce. What they don't want is someone else getting that profit. And in particular, you know, Hydro-Quebec getting that profit, right, in this particular instance. That's Anthony Moffat, an environmental lawyer from the University of Maine. But even within that framework, we have a problem. Because of every energy company out there, can use this playbook in a way to shut down a project that isn't theirs. Even if their alternative is also a renewable one, well, we're just going to stay stuck in the status quo. And the status quo would be the worst scenario of them all. 
The battle here between Nextera, Calpine, and Vistra on one side, and Hydro-Quebec and Avangrid on the other, well, that dates back to the Massachusetts RFP itself. As a reminder, Massachusetts sent out an RFP looking for renewable energy to hit their state quota. Now, we're going to focus more on the role Nextera played. Since they contributed the most out of all outside parties, the opposition groups, but they also submitted their own wind energy proposal to that original Massachusetts RFP. Nextera also has a unique role in that they were able to further block the project because it needed upgrades to the circuit breakers at their Seabrook main plant, something it seemed Nextera initially refused to support and later clarified that they just refused to pay for the upgrades since it was for a competitive product. It's worth mentioning, however, that Calpine and Vistra likely had some different underlying motives in Nextera, namely to protect their fossil fuel interests in Maine where they both operate natural gas plants. And Nextera does have an oil-fired plant in Maine, in Yarmouth. So they have fossil fuels in the state as well, but not natural gas like Calpine and Vistra. As Lynn from Hydro-Quebec explains, hydropower is a unique threat to natural gas in that it is a consistently reliable energy source, unlike solar and wind, which have intermittent issues for the time being. Well, it's it's probably some of the reasons why we saw the opposition organized um, with the funding of fossil fuel companies um, in New England and more specifically in Maine um, through the past years is that um, some of these companies do have renewable generation in their portfolio, but um, that generation can be backed up by thermal, their own thermal plants, um, except when we show up then we're displacing the generation from their thermal plants. So of course we will see opposition from this type of company to solutions um, like hydropower. And it happens to be from, um, fr from, the, from the other side of the border. So they can use another series of arguments, but the fact is that clean hydropower produced in boreal conditions um, can lower GHG emissions, and we can also displace their generation because we have a technology that is just as flexible and reliable as a gas plant, um, which does have that same reliability and flexibility, except that our source um, is low carbon and, and renewable. So we are faced with that, you know, that, that type of opposition, and um, it, you know, it might be reflective of what your, what your thoughts. Now, if you want to learn more about the pros and cons of hydropower, as it relates to natural gas and other renewables, go back and listen to episode two of the series, where we break that down much further. I also want to remind our listeners that while not without its own flaws, nuclear remains a very strong candidate for replacing the steady flow and minimal transmission needs of natural gas as we advance into new nuclear technology, such as small modular reactors. But that's a rabbit hole for another time. Still, we need a renewable mix, since all renewable sources are not without their trade-offs and the right kinds of hydropower in the right locations can be part of it. I'm sure Nextera was frustrated that the renewable bids lost the NECEC. From a purely business perspective, it would make sense to try and stall or stop the NECEC in hopes of getting their own bid back into consideration. If there's one thing we can probably all agree on when it comes to big energy companies, even if they sincerely care about their transition to renewables, well, they would strongly prefer to do it in a way that supports their own bottom line. That's how our economic system works. The NECEC had a bit of an advantage in that process, given they started laying the groundwork for their transmission corridor years before there was a Massachusetts proposal. Massachusetts originally rewarded the bid to Hydro-Quebec via the Northern Pass transmission corridor in New Hampshire. When that got rejected by the state regulatory agencies due to the environmental trade-offs, 
Massachusetts next chose essentially the same project, or at least a similar one in essence, but this time running through Maine. Here's Thorne Dickinson, CEO of the NECUC. We, uh, um, Avant Grid, um, had the, the resources in order to essentially I estimated it was going to cost about $17 million. As I said, the, the corridor going from Lewiston um, up into what's called the Forks, the northern area of Maine, was already there. Um, what we needed was a path to the Quebec border. And I estimated that was going to cost about $17 million and made the argument um, to the organization that this is something they should fund. My belief was um, that through this working force, this area that's heavily logged, more and more of those areas are getting protected. And my thought was, if we don't buy this land now, we're not going to have this radial opportunity to, um, to develop it. So that, um, my pitch was whether it's now or a generation from now, this corridor could enable wind, uh, solar, or hydropower from there. There was a lot of discussion. Ultimately, the company agreed to move forward, and uh, we began the process of negotiating. And essentially, there was three logging companies that uh, we bought the land from. Again, these are areas that are logged, logging roads. We can always look at some of the aerial shots if you haven't already of the area. Uh, but that's that's how we uh, um, move forward and ultimately bought the, the all the rights and land to it. From Hydro-Quebec's viewpoint, they were fortunate that even though their project did not get approved in New Hampshire, they had another proposal for Central Maine Power to move that hydropower through Maine. Now, that's good preparation on their part. There's also another lens to look at this through. Adam Cote, the lawyer for some of the opposition efforts, noted that the way this RFP was set up by Massachusetts heavily favored Hydro-Quebec, given its short timeline for delivery. Building new wind and solar farms takes time, as does building new hydro. Hydro-Quebec was in a unique position to increase the output from their existing facilities. Something we're going to touch on in more detail in just a minute, making them an optimal solution for this RFP. Undoubtedly, this competitive advantage for Hydro-Quebec was also a frustration point for other renewable energy providers. Remember, this came out of Massachusetts. This was a law passed in Massachusetts saying we want to have a larger percentage of our portfolio uh, to be clean power, and they defined the clean power, right? They wrote a section of it that essentially guaranteed there'd be some offshore wind. And then they, they wrote another section of this law, which really gets to what we're talking about, that set the time frame to enter into contracts and to have this power delivered pretty aggressively, which essentially said, we've got to have it be existing power that's already out there, right? So it takes a while to build you know, a bunch of these power plants. So they were essentially contracting to get the power delivered within a couple of years which meant it's an existing uh, facility, which essentially kind of set it up so that it needed to be the hydro um, power because that's already being made. This brings us to the crux of one of the key issues in this controversy, the net global climate benefits. This was a really pivotal piece of the opposition narrative because it made the environmental trade-offs of the new Northern Transmission Corridor, as well as the distrust of CMP, look even worse if the project itself had no actual climate benefits. Opposition groups hammered this home across their messaging, advertising, and social content. In other disputes around the country, some solar and wind projects have had to face with this narrative due to their intermittent issue, since the wind does not always blow and the sun does not always shine. 
Opposition groups cite that those times when solar and wind generation are not fulfilling their own power needs, well, they will need to be backfilled by something else more reliable, like natural gas. And thus, if they're backfilled by natural gas, their net climate benefits can be questioned. In the case of Maine, the net climate benefits debate was a challenge for the NECC in Hydro-Quebec to shut down. The lead voice in this topic from the opposition side was Nick Bennett from the NRCM. In his viewpoint, since Hydro-Quebec is not putting new hydro facilities online in order to deliver the additional energy to the New England grid, well, that must mean that they are pulling it from current demand in Canada, which then has to be backfilled with something else. The fundamental problem here, and this is in Hydro-Quebec's and CMP's request for proposal to Massachusetts as part of the big bidding process to meet what, what Massachusetts calls a solicitation under one of its recent climate-related laws. So essentially, in order to meet the requirements of this law, Massachusetts has to come up with increasing amounts of renewable energy. And so they put out a big request for proposals. There were 47 bids, I believe. Their first choice was the, the previous project I mentioned that would have gone through New Hampshire, which New Hampshire rejected. And their second choice was us, uh, which we the people of Maine have now rejected. But in their contract or in their request for proposal for that contract, Hydro-Quebec and CMP said there would be no new generation associated with this project, that all the energy would come from existing facilities in Quebec. And they said there would be no construction risk associated with this, recognizing, of course, that um, if they had to build another dam or two for this project, it would cause a huge uproar because those Hydro-Quebec dams have terrible environmental impacts. They displace native people. They're extremely destructive to fish and wildlife. And, um, you know, I think they were trying to cover one ugly spot by doing that. And then they very quickly realized they had revealed another ugly spot, which is that there's no new generation from, from this, this whole proposed project. So there are no climate benefits. And essentially, all Hydro-Quebec is doing is adding wires, new wires that go from, from their system through Maine to Massachusetts so they can get more electricity to Massachusetts instead of sending it to other places like New York and the Midwest or New Brunswick, which pays them less for that electricity. Massachusetts offered them a contract at higher rates, and most of Hydro-Quebec's electricity gets sold on the spot market, and it's not as lucrative. As we learned from Lynn earlier in the series, she has explained how Hydro-Quebec is able to increase output from existing facilities through a combination of turbine and other equipment upgrades alongside storing more water during peak flow that then can be used to increase net capacity without the need for more facilities. Without more demand, such as the deal from the NECC, well, they would have to spill the excess water instead. Thorne Dickinson from the NECC mentioned this in our chat, that he had been following Hydro-Quebec's capacity for quite some time and saw they had to spill a large amount of water because they didn't have demand for it. But when I looked at all this hydro coming on and all their sales in there, we saw a slow increase in the total amount of reservoirs across Quebec. And by the time I um, submitted my study um, in, in the record in the Public Utility Commission case, um, it, it was clear to me that something was happening and that I would expect that there would probably have to spill water because 
the the reservoirs were just growing so much in size. And within a few months after that, Hydro-Quebec announced to their own um, people in Quebec that they actually spilled about $500 million worth of water um, that they couldn't get economically out of the region. Nick Bender from the NRCM, well, he disagrees. All dams spill. And there's a reason why dams spill. And that's because dams are built to take advantage of flows at some sort of median or average level. You don't build dams to take advantage of maximum flows because maximum flows occur at a very small percentage of the time during the year. So if you build your generation capacity to take advantage of flows that occur 10 days of the year, you build a generation capacity which a large part of it won't, won't be used for most of the year. So nobody does that. And that means you have to either store or spill. And the same argument or median estimate of river flows that you build your generation capacity for applies to storage capacity. You don't build storage capacity to hold water in the wettest year out of a hundred years, right? Because then 99 years of the time, you're not using that storage capacity that was expensive to build and you've wasted your money. There's gonna be time when Hydro-Quebec spills water as with every other dam and every other reservoir. They have provided no evidence that they can actually take advantage of that spillage. To be fair to Hydro-Quebec, they have offered up public tours of their facilities to verify the points here. As Lynn pointed out, if you're not able to take their word for it or take word of the state and federal agencies that approve the project on the grounds of it having net climate benefits, well, then come on up to Northern Quebec and see it for yourself. That lack of faith the public had in the regulatory process was a disappointment for Thorne. I think the first thing is, um, you know, what's, I think, incredibly disappointing to me is, uh, you know, we, in order to get um, this project approved, we had to go through a three and a half year regulatory process. Um, the main Department of Environmental Protection, the main Public Utility Commission, the Army Corps of Engineers, main, main land-based planning, the Department of Energy, uh, the New England ISO. All of these uh, analysis were incredibly thorough with hearings and public comments. Uh, obviously, the fossil fuel group was there. The split in the environmental community was there. Uh, incredibly thorough and detailed analysis that resulted in final approvals that went through all these issues. So the um, frustration I have with the uh, talking points from both the fossil fuel industry and NRCM, Natural Resources Council of Maine, uh, ignores all of the hard work that the independent regulators did in that work. The Public Utility Commission did an entire week on this subject. I think it was five days of, of hearings and testimony uh, cross-examination. The Department of Energy and the Army Corps also partnered up on a thorough study themselves, along with the main Department of Environmental Protection. The conclusion of all of those is this is going to be largely, if not all, incremental energy, not just New England, but globally. Um, and the, the opposition didn't like that answer. They continued to harp on the fact that there was no uh, climate change benefit associated with the project. So back to the code playbook. Creating doubt around the legitimacy of your opponent's claims is core to success. Now, I cannot say sitting here today if those net climate benefits 
are there on this one for certain. But it would seem to be improbable that every agency got this wrong along the way. At the same time, there were opportunities for the New England Clean Energy Connect to better communicate to local mainers how this additional capacity would be generated without the need for additional dams. They were able to convince the regulatory bodies, but they failed to convince the public. When it comes to next era and the reasons to fund opposition projects, well, the way this issue played out in public couldn't have been any better. Another tactic we discussed up front are efforts to conduct independent studies from academia or organizations outside of those setting the policy that contradict the original findings. This also came to play here in Maine and was a critical point of contention. The opposition groups wanted an independent study to assess the climate benefits of the project. Since again, as you heard from Nick, they did not buy into what was being presented to them from the regulatory agencies. As was the case with challenging the net climate benefits claim of the project, based on my findings, I don't suspect any foul play here on the part of the opposition groups who tried to put forward their own independent study. They had a strong conviction in their challenges to the benefits of the NECEC, and they did not trust the analysis done at the regulatory levels. But if you're next there at Calpine Avistra, this type of independent study from the source of opposition is exactly what they would have done if they were following the Koch playbook. So all the more reason to support it. This is Sandra Howard, the director of Say No to the New England Clean Energy Connect a grassroots 501c3 nonprofit, and also the principal officer of the political action committee, no CMP corridor. And so if this project were to truly benefit climate change, I think our group would have a very different stance on it. In fact, CMP and their allies, Hydro-Quebec, blocked every effort to try to have an independent climate analysis on this project. And you know, if they were really convinced that it would help the climate benefit, then the question is, why did they hire 30 lobbyists to kill a bill that would have had a study come out, which might have satisfied the questions that the public has brought up? Now, in my conversation with Ben Dudley, who ran a grassroots organization of his own in support of the project called Mainers for Clean Energy Jobs, he acknowledged that the study was blocked because of when and how it was introduced in the process and the lack of transparency on how it would be conducted all of that, uh, and testified at the public hearing on that bill. Um, so opponents to the NECC put forward legislation to direct the Maine Department of Environmental Protection to conduct a rather expansive study uh, to determine the, the clean nature of the, of the electricity and how it would, uh, or whether it would reduce CO2 emissions uh, globally. And um, they introduced it uh, late in the session. They held, they held a public hearing late in the session. The committee didn't resolve the bill until, I think, May or June of that year, uh, keeping in mind that the, the, the legislation itself directed the DEP to conduct the study and have it complete by, I think it was in the August-September timeframe. So we're talking about you know a three-, four-month window, um, which got even tighter. Um, when the legislature failed to pass the legislation or, or, or delayed taking up the legislation. And I'm reminded of a couple of things, and I hope that made sense, but a reminder of a couple of things. The first is that the Department of Environmental Protection itself testified on this bill, basically saying, you're asking us to do this in this amount of time, uh, which is not going to be enough time to do what you're asking us to do, A, and B, you're not telling us what to do with this information once we collect it. How, how is it supposed to determine 
uh, our, our process uh, as we're considering this permit application. There was no direction on how the data that was collected was to be used. And so the potential there was uh, for just a further legal tie-ups as a result of this really unspecific, in terms of purpose, unspecific legislation. Lynn from Hydro-Quebec also validated in our conversation that the study was indeed blocked under similar concerns from Ben. Well, we didn't view it as a real study, James. We really saw that initiative as an attempt to stop or delay the project. The idea for this um, initiative was very complex, involving thousands of generators from Virginia to Maine, Ontario, New Brunswick, um, dozens of variables, assumptions over a 25-year period, different regulatory universes um, in different regions, different jurisdictions. It was um, a study that had really difficult deadlines to meet, questionable funding as well. They were open to contributions from unidentified private parties. I mentioned the regulatory process before. It took the Maine Public Utility Commission several months um, to model similar issues for the New England market. They had three different analyses into that process. So the, the, the folks at the PUC, the commissioners, look at three different analyses. And so this was would have been another one, but over a much broader region. And they had to do it within about 10 weeks. Hmm. So it seemed like an impossible task, unless perhaps they had already prepared their study, which was something that we were wondering about. So. It, this had the word trap all over it, um, and, and it wasn't a legitimate initiative from our perspective. Got it. So it, it is correct that, um, uh, that 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 study was blocked, but from your perspective, there are like very valid reasons for doing so. Is that a fair yes. way to frame it? Yeah. Now, in some ways, this was a win-win scenario for the opposition. Had they been able to push the study forward in such a way that it cast doubt to the benefits of the project, that would have given local Mainers more reason to oppose it. Alternatively, if the study was blocked from happening altogether, well, that would raise red flags as well, which is what happened. This is why putting your own studies forward is such a useful tactic installing these types of projects. Again, I'm not passing any judgment here as to the potential merit of the study the opposition groups wanted to conduct. It may very well be that the net climate benefits claims from the NECC and Hydro-Quebec are not as advertised. My point here is that all it takes to create momentum against these infrastructure projects is to put forward the prospects of the study in the first place. That can be a good thing when the project is making false claims, but a really negative one when it's not. Finally, another angle worth mentioning as it relates to flagging reasons competitive energy providers would not want to see this project come to light is the notion from Hydro-Quebec that the transmission line, along with their hydropower, could serve as a sort of battery for the region. Lynn discussed this in our chat, and what she essentially is saying here is that the transmission line could be utilized in the future to move other forms of renewable energy around as well, since it's a net increase to overall transmission capacity. And because sources like wind and solar are intermittent, meaning they go up and they go down, the hydropower from Hydro-Quebec could fill those intermittent gaps when they recur, since large hydro dams provide a much more consistent source of energy. I don't know if this is helpful, but I've once compared this infrastructure to a house that you're, you're building for generations to come. Um, and essentially, it's as though Massachusetts was providing for the payment of the house, and it will serve um, in the near term for a series of set needs. In this case, it's to provide 
baseload power to New England um, and Massachusetts is buying that power. But in decades to come, at the end of that contract, after that, that payment for the house that Massachusetts um, is making, then it's something that can serve the market's needs however they will have progressed in the decades to come. And the way we see, we see that progression is a future where there is an addition of renewable energy technologies being added to the grid. And by that, I mean wind power and solar power. And that's great because we need to wean off fossil fuels. However, those great technologies are intermittent. So when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, hydropower can be that necessary backup power, balancing those intermittent technologies. Right now, that balancing, because there are, um, there's, there's a significant amount of, of megawatts of wind power and solar power that have been added um, to the grid in the past decade or so. And um, for the most part, they're being balanced, if you will, by fossil technology, by fossil sources. Um, and the great thing about hydropower is that it can be constant, firm, always on to provide baseload power, but it's also flexible. I mean, we can, we can turn on that power by the flick of the switch. Uh, literally, in a matter of minutes, we can start up um, those water turbines or shut them down. So it has that flexibility to be able to balance um, those intermittent renewable sister technology. Nick from the NRCM adamantly disagrees with this conceptually. It's a direct current line, and it is almost impossible to, uh, because of costs, to hook up any power sources, um, new power sources that might string up along such a line. So if this were an AC line, then if there were solar farms that wanted to tap into this line and connect to the grid that way, that would be possible. It's impossible with this. Nobody will be able to tap into this line in the 150 miles between Quebec and, and the endpoint. A. B, these people have said all kinds of crazy things about, oh, well, we could use Hydro-Quebec as a battery and, you know, we could, we could ship uh, excess electricity when, you know, when Maine or, or New England is generating excess solar and wind and have it shipped back to Quebec so they could use it. Preposterous. You can't do that with a DC line. You can't have a line running both ways. And this is a one-way line. It is a line solely to ship Hydro-Quebec's energy to Massachusetts. Now, in a way, they're both correct. Nick is correct that the line as originally intended to be constructed was a one-way line designed to move hydropower from Quebec to Lewiston, Maine. However, it is possible to perform upgrades on that line that would allow other power sources like large-scale solar to move through. There will be costs associated with those, and I'm sure another heated debate about who should pay for it when the time comes. Undoubtedly, those costs could get passed on, for example, to NextEra if they want to connect their wind power to the line. I'm sure Hydro-Quebec would not want to pay for those upgrades for NextEra any more than NextEra didn't want to pay for the upgrades to their Seabrook plant we alluded to earlier. In the end, as we know, this project was shut down by a public vote in November of 2021 and is now awaiting its final fate in the main courts this summer. If you're next era, Calpine and Vistra, this couldn't have played out any better. Reasonable doubt about the climate benefits of this project, as well as those to Mainers, was demonstrated. 
The messaging and talking points behind these were powerful and persuasive. Throw in the negative reputation of CMP, which we covered in the previous episode, which is owned by a massive energy conglomerate itself and Avangrid, and questions surrounding its impact to Maine's northern forest. And all Nextera had to do was throw gasoline on the fire via tens of millions of dollars amplifying these talking points. Whether or not they helped shape and craft them as well, I don't know, and I could not find out. I reached out to Nextera for the series, but they did not respond. But we know from examining that Coke playbook that these companies can be very stealth when it comes to not leaving any fingerprints at the scene. At the end of the day, this comes down to business decisions and pursuit of profits. And that's on both sides. Just as Hydro-Quebec and CMP had an economic interest in putting this project forward, Nextera, Calpine, and Vistra had an economic interest in aiding its opposition. Big energy companies on both sides spent a lot of money here. And in fact, Hydro-Quebec and CMP spent even more than Nextera, Calpine, and Vistra. Something Adam pointed out that from his point of view, cast some doubt on whether these three really impacted the vote. Many groups opposed to the CMP corridor. Um, one of them was the Mainers for Local Power Group, which is essentially, as you said, made up of power generators in the New England grid, Calpine Vistra, Next Era later came on. They were opposed to it. Uh, CMP responded to that by saying, oh, look, this is fossil fuel companies funding this opposition. And, you know, it, what, a, what a shame that we're trying to do this clean energy stuff. And fossil fuels come in and ruin. It's a nice narrative for them to, to try to focus on that. The reality is all these companies are, are involved in fossil fuels. They're involved in renewable energy. CMP, Auburn Grid owns a whole bunch of fossil fuel companies. I mentioned how they own it. Uh, Nextera is one of the largest renewable energy portfolios in, in the country. I think the largest, uh, Calpine and Vistra, in addition to owning you know, natural gas, they own geothermal and solar, blah, blah, blah. These guys are all competitors. I get that. I understand that argument. The fact of the matter is that in and of itself is not going to change the course of a project getting approved or a project not getting approved. Ultimately, this was Maine voters. CMP and Hydro-Quebec outspent our side, my side, that was opposed to it, three to one. They dumped $75 million into trying to promote a project that ultimately Mainers were like, no, this is not good for us. It wasn't quote unquote, fossil fuel companies or the competitors that came in that suddenly had one out of every three ads on the air that won the day here. This was really Mainers looking at it and saying, it's a bad deal for Maine. I don't trust CMP. I don't care what they tell me. How they, they're suddenly, they care about clean energy or suddenly their service is going to dramatically improve or suddenly they're going to give us these great benefits when they haven't been able to get my bill right. Um, you know, CMP likes to say this was about competitors and their, their disproportionate involvement in it. It really didn't play a difference uh, in, in this. Certainly having the competitors involved in the, in the side to defeat it was helpful, but it, it was not dispositive. It did not, it, it, it wasn't the reason why this corridor uh, was essentially rejected by Mainers. That's fine to point out from Adam, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the greatest threat to our much-needed renewable energy transition 
is that the energy companies are always able to use their power and influence to shut down renewable projects from competitors, regardless of their actual merits. And that's a big problem because it should be those merits and those merits alone that determine the fate of these projects, regardless of where the business interests lie. Because if most renewable projects are able to be stalled by a competing business interest, we will be left with the status quo of a fossil fuel-driven electricity system. Well, you know, you, you, there's a threshold question here. <laughs> Why does NextEra want to invest in this campaign? Why are they willing to spend the money? Um, and, uh, and, and what does that tell you regarding the truth of this project? The fact is that uh, the, the primary funders of the, 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 the campaign against this project, and by primary, I mean over 98% of the money spent on, in, in the campaign in opposition to this project came from NextEra, Calpine, and Vistra. These three companies are in the, are, are, every one of them is in the top 10 worst carbon polluters in the country. This is according to analysis by the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, and so why do they want to stop the project? They want to stop the project because it interferes with their economic interests. Their economic interests, Calpine and Vistra, their economic interest is tied to the fact they, uh, that they principally uh, burn natural gas to generate electricity here in Maine and, and around New England. Uh, and that this project will lower uh, the price, that, lower their ability to, to supply that uh, natural gas generated electricity. And in the case of next era, while they own and operate a, an oil-fired power plant that is almost visible from my home in Portland, um, their principal interest is in nuclear power in New England, which, you know, for those of us concerned about carbon, you know, maybe we, we think of them as our friend. However, what next era relies upon for the, for the commercial success of its nuclear power plant is keeping the price of electricity high. And the, and the, the fuel source that keeps the price of electricity high in New England is natural gas. So their interests align with the natural gas interests and next year poured the money into this campaign. And so if you're in the opposition, you know, taking their money, it seems attractive, but you have to ask yourself, what does it say about my position? Is there actually maybe some truth to the fact that this project harms the interests of, commercial, of, of fossil fuel energy producers? And the overwhelming evidence in terms of dollars spent is that, yes, you are on the side of fossil fuel energy producers. What Ben is saying here is that in the case of Calpine and Vistra, it's clear they want to protect their natural gas business in the state of Maine. It's hard to dispute that. In the case of NextEra, it's a bit more complicated, since they have such a heavy arsenal of their own renewable energy. If they take the position, however, that the renewable energy transition needs to happen on their watch and their watch only, under their projects and their projects only, well, that's not going to get us where we need to be. Again, in this particular case of the NECC getting shut down in Maine, there are valid criticisms of large-scale hydropower and a northern transmission line that have nothing to do with NextEra's involvement. Our hope here at Animalia is that the facts, wherever they may be, will prevail and drive the final decision in the courts this summer. However, across the country, we are seeing big energy companies use similar tactics to slow down competing renewable projects. In the end, we need every player out there prioritizing renewable energy over fossil fuels. If we have any chance of hitting our goal 
of lowering greenhouse gas emissions from our electricity grid by 80% come 2030. As of right now, we are not even remotely close to hitting that target, not within a long shot. In the energy industry, with its high barriers to entry, there are these players historically who have been involved who have for many, many years uh, promoted fossil fuel energy generation. And now we're asking them to switch to renewables. And if we're being honest with ourselves about the policy, we need them to switch to renewables. We cannot depend on new energy providers coming online and meeting the demand. There just isn't enough capital in that space. And the regulatory hurdles are just too significant. We need at least some of the existing utilities that are out there to be creating new renewable energy, right? Or at least bringing it on, on into the grid. That means we need incumbents like Calpine and Vistra to make the switch off of natural gas. And we need to embrace new renewable projects as well, be it a solar rooftop project in a small town in Maine or a hydropower project in Canada. Again, with the caveat that on a case-by-case basis, the benefits and costs of a given project are objectively evaluated and transparently put forward in deciding if it moves forward or not. Perhaps the biggest challenge ahead is how to protect any sort of objective analysis going forward especially when politics and emotions and social media and playbooks get all mucked up in the process. I want to finish with an excerpt from the end of my chat with Sandra Howard, the music teacher turned activist who leads a nonprofit say no to the NECC. Now, Sandra is someone I found to be very relatable and a sincerely genuine person. She stands against the project because based on the information she's seen, the benefits do not outweigh the costs. As a local Mainer, she very much stands for transitioning all fossil fuels just not via this particular initiative. She also acknowledged in our chat how it's getting increasingly difficult for voters to get objective information, given there is so much messaging coming from both sides. And she has concerns about the challenges this dynamic presents going forward. Well, I think you're right. I think for any proposal that comes out, there's going to be an opposing argument. And, you know, how much money does that argument have behind it? How much um, leverage, you know, what's going to sway public opinion, I think it's very complicated. One thing that we can all do is reduce our own energy consumption. And that's something that I don't know is being talked about enough. Um, We certainly have to shift the way we get energy, but we could also be a little more mindful in our daily practice. Um, And again, you might say, well, that's not gonna keep us from two degrees. It's something that we can all start doing now. And at least, you know, while these conversations are happening and while energy is like steering a huge ship to try to, you know, to write its direction. um, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of things that impede the progress of transitioning to a more renewable centered energy basis. Okay. That's it for episode four of 53 miles and me. Thank you as always to everyone who contributed their time and thoughts and to all of you out there for supporting this podcast. We'll be back with one final episode, episode five just kind of wrapping things up and quite possibly we'll get the court's decision in Maine before we release it. Thank you all for supporting Animalia and most of all, for supporting this big, beautiful planet and all the incredible life. Till next time.